And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It's Thursday, February 4th. Derek Van Riper here with Michael Beller. Our first episode as a pairing for this year, of course, under the radar runs year-round, so we're happy to be boosting up our feed again and a little bit of a schedule change. We did this show, I think, on Fridays throughout last season. Now it's going to be a Thursday afternoon show. Everything kind of fits together nice, though. We have our Fantasy Baseball in 15 show every weekday morning. We've got rates and barrels now on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. So with this and under the radar going Tuesday, Thursday, there are two baseball pods, two fantasy baseball pods to listen to each and every day from us, Beller. It is, uh, it's a great place to be. It's a great season. It really is. I love when everything comes together and fits together perfectly. We had a lot of little puzzle pieces to work out. We had to uh, spread them out on the table and make sure you know, we got our edges over here and our middle pieces over there. But hey, we put it all together and come the beginning of the season, we'll have our uh, Sunday waiver show too. So uh, definitely excited for this season. Everything's fitting together and happy to be bringing this uh, show, this version of this show once a week, every week. If you had to describe yourself as a puzzle piece... Would you say you're an edge piece or a middle piece? Uh, man, I mean, middle pieces feel so much more fun and eccentric, right? I mean, I at least want to think of myself as a middle piece, right? Oddly shaped, but totally necessary to the overall picture, right? Rather than just playing within the guardrails of the edges. So I at least think of myself as uh, as a middle piece. That's where I'm going. How about you? Um, a corner. <laughs> not, not, not just an edge, but a corner. I would say our buddy Nando Defino is probably a middle piece for sure. Oh, man. He's uh, one of those middle pieces that like has one of the weird like triangles that come together <laughs> that like can't really fit. It seems like it fits in a million different places. You pick the piece up like 400 different times when you're putting the puzzle together, and then finally it comes together. Yeah, that's definitely Nando as a puzzle piece. Yeah, definitely has his own uh, unique flair, but uh, that's why we love him. Uh, so lots to yep. talk about on this show. We're going to focus on some early round decisions. We figured start at the top of the board, get through some of the problem solving that has to take place as we begin to build our rosters in 2021. There's a few different ways to break it down, but I just want to talk about the players at the very top. And for me, in my latest set of rankings, the the order for me is not quite the same as the NFBC ADP. The NFBC ADP goes Acuna, Tatis, Betts, Soto, and then Cole and DeGrom as the first six off the board. So yes, Mike Trout is not in the first half of the first round based on ADP if we're talking about a 12-team league. He's sitting right there at 7. Uh, you get to him and Trey Turner, then Shane Bieber and Trevor Story around at the top 10. Jose Ramirez, Christian Yelich, Freddie Freeman, Cody Bellinger, and Francisco Lindor round out the top 15. And this is for drafts that have been run since January 15th over at the NFBC. So a pretty good snapshot of what some very sharp players are doing as they build their teams. Uh, the first decision, though, 1-1. If you draw that 1-1 pick, 
you have to choose. So, I mean, for me, I'm choosing Fernando Tatis Jr. over Ronald Acuna. And the main reason for me, I see a little more of a batting average ceiling with Tatis, even though I think there could be just as much swing and miss in his profile as Acuna's long term. The way he's hit the ball since arriving in the big leagues, we're seeing better average exit velocities and a little more max exit velo too. And I think both guys can be great across the board. Both are going to help you in steals, which are really important. We'll talk about that a little later on. Uh, and I think the other thing that kind of nudges me towards Tatis, even though shortstop is really deep, I still would rather choose a shortstop over an outfielder if everything else is equal. But I still think there's a slight edge favoring Tatis, even if we neutralize positions. So we're in, we're, we're sort of in agreement here and sort of at loggerheads. The way we're in agreement is that if my decision is Tatis versus Acuna, I am also going with Tatis for all the reasons that you said. I just think he's also, and what you sort of hinted at, you didn't say it in exactly these words. I think he's just the better actual hitter. And I think there's going to be some growth in that in his game this season. So I am with you on Tatis over Acuna. Out of these four guys, however, Tatis would not be my choice. I would go with Juan Soto. And for me, when I'm looking at these hitters, I still want to always be basing my decision on who is the best pure hitter. Full stop. That's it. And I think when we're looking at these four guys who it feels as though they have already started to separate a little bit from the rest of the pack, and maybe that separation is only going to get a little bit deeper as we really get into the heart of draft season, I think Soto is just comfortably the best hitter out of this group. And I think what we're seeing with him and with Mike Trout, which would I like to say something about too, is a fealty to steals that for my taste is a little bit overdone. I know how important steals are, and I know how it can get very hard to find them if you pass on them this early in the draft, but still, hitting is about hitting. And I want that foundation for my offense to come from not passing on the elite of the elite hitters. And when I look at that, I still see a tier of two with Mike Trout and Juan Soto. I know it's crazy. I know I won't have to do it, or it seems crazy because of uh, the way that ADP charts are already shaken out. But DVR, I, I would still take Mike Trout first. I think we're just getting a little bit too crazy with uh, the, like I said, the fealty, two stolen bases, and maybe we're overplaying the hand of him missing some time. 134 games played in 2019, 140 in 2018, 53 out of 60 last year. So you bake in maybe a 10-day 10, 10 IL stint here, maybe even two of those, but I mean... This is Mike Trout we're talking about here. He has been the literal best hitter in the game since the day he stepped foot in the majors, and nothing he has done over the last decade has changed that. I personally would rather lean on that than someone who is not quite the hitter he is, but who's going to steal 30 bases. Right. I mean, I think with, with Trout, you're not at all worried about the K rate being in the mid to high 20% range and the batting average falling into the 250, 260 range. And I think that could happen to either one of Tatis or Acuna. It's in their range of reasonable outcomes, even if it's not the most likely outcome. So there is a case for Mike Trout. I mean, if you Frankenstein 2019 and 2020 together, just mush all the stats together with a, a two-year leaderboard over at Fangraphs, you'll see that Mike Trout has 62 home runs, 151 runs, 150 RBIs, 12 steals. It's good for a 175 WRC plus because he's a 288 <laughs> hitter during that span with a 424 OBP. A 175 WRC plus 
does not exist anywhere else on the leaderboard for anybody who's played that much. The actual closest hitter to that mark is Jordan Alvarez, who missed a lot of time in the shortened season with that knee injury. He actually has a 177 WRC plus in the two seasons combined, but we're talking about half as many plate appearances, even less than that than what Trout has had during that same time. So there's absolutely a case for Trout. I've got him at three. I fight the third pick and Tatis and Acuna are gone. I'm taking Mike Trout there. And I think you can use similar logic with Trout and Soto. I think mm-hmm. Soto's on that trajectory and he's younger too. You could look at Trout and say, maybe we are going to enter the beginning of a 12-year decline for Mike Trout. Well, it's going to be very <laughs> gradual. It's going to be yeah. these, the most the most wonderfully slow descent you could possibly imagine. The smoothest landing, landing possible where Mike Trout and... 10, 15 years is still even a good big leaguer, potentially. Like That's that's absolutely possible for him. So if you want to go the other way and get the guy that's sort of getting into that sort of trajectory, I mean, Juan Soto had a WRC plus of 200 in the shortened season. And no, you can't do that over a full season. But we're talking about a really young player who has some power. I think you can trust Soto's speed a little more than Trout's at this stage mm-hmm. of their respective careers. Last two seasons combined, 18 steals from Soto compared to Trout's 12. Soto has actually struck out less than Trout during that span, 18.7%. And he's walked just a hair more, 17.4% walk rate. So he ticks all the boxes too. So if you said, I like the concept of Trout, but I want a younger player, Juan Soto ticks those boxes. And then we still have Mookie Betts sitting up there, coming off of a monster shortened season as well. And you think about what he could do over a full season with the Dodgers. I mean, he he might be the safest player in the pool right now. If you, if you think more balanced five-category production, you want mm-hmm. a little more speed than Trout and Soto are going to give you, but you want a little less risk than you think there is attached to Tatis and Acuna, Mookie Betts is your option, maybe even at 1-1 in that situation. Because, again, you have that spot. You have to pick somebody. <laughs> you can't right, right. get deferred to pick five. It doesn't work like that. You have to <laughs> choose for yourself. Would you rather be picking fifth this year than picking first? I think so, but it's not because I don't want to make the decision at 1-1. I just think mm-hmm. it's, a lot, it's a lot more likely I'm going to get a player that is a notch above my next group. Yep. If I'm picking earlier in round two, right? If we're talking about a 15 team league, if you're picking fifth, you're picking 26th also. Mm-hmm. And the way pitching has been running off the board, if you really want to have a pitcher with one of your first two picks, you really want to have a top 10 pitcher, right? You don't want to reach for somebody there. So the further, further down the order you go in round one, the more likely it is you're going to have a few options. The earlier you pick in round one, the more likely it is you may not even have an option you really want there. And you may have to go hitter, hitter, hitter with your first three picks and mm-hmm. wait and see what happens all the way in round four and round five before you start building out a rotation. So we'll talk about some of the the ins and outs of, of those mechanics. But I, I think for me, I would go like three, probably five, four, three, two, one. I'm not I'm not opposed to picking sixth or seventh though either. Usually those middle spots end up being absolutely last for me if I'm ranking yeah. my orders, mm-hmm, my, my mm-hmm. preferred order. And I usually put in counting backwards from the end, like 15, 14, 13 in a lot of cases, because I like having a couple picks clustered together down there. You basically get two first rounders in a lot of cases. So it might be different where I'm more like five, four, three, two, one, six, seven, fifteen, eight, nine, ten. 14, 13, 12, 11, or something along those lines if I'm putting <laughs> yeah. out that KDS list. 
Yeah, I think it's I, I'm looking at that, too, in something in that order. And I, I do feel more comfortable being in the middle of a, of a draft this year than I've been in any year recently. And it's got a lot to do with guys like I mean, you mentioned it, right? The the uh, with the top three being Tatis Acuna and um, uh, Mookie Betts. You could be looking at getting Juan Soto fourth, Mike Trout fifth. I mean, that is just that's beautiful. And it feels almost like an accident uh, that has led people to be able to get hitters of that caliber outside of the top three picks and drafts. And I, I mean, I just got to ask you, like, am I, am I crazy? I mean, you've been doing, you've been, I'm just, I'm like just transitioning into baseball, right? I've been hosting our fantasy football podcast five days a week uh, for this entire uh, winter and fall. And I'm like just transitioning fully into baseball. Like, am I, am I missing something with ignoring quote the steals this early on in drafts and not wanting guys like Tatis or Acuna or wanting Trout and Soto more than those guys, I guess is the better way to put that. It's not like I don't want Ronald Acuna on my fantasy teams. I don't think you're missing anything. I think what it does is if you're taking 10, 15, or 20 fewer projected steals in the first round, you have to figure out where you're going to get those without taking on unnecessary risk. A lot of players that steal bases, especially in the bottom half of the player pool, are players that fall into part-time roles or they never even have a starting opportunity to begin with. So it's really difficult to justify rostering them just for steals when they're going to lag behind in everything else, either because of lack mm -hmm. of playing time or because of where they get positioned in their respective batting orders, right? I mean, a prototypical example would be Malik Smith. And I think he's finally at the point now where he's kind of battling for a job. If he has a job with the Mets, he's sort of the fifth outfielder. And we're not even really looking at him as a mixed league option in most cases. So I think the goal is always to avoid relying too much on those players. But there are guys in the middle rounds who I think are, are very safe for 20-plus steals. Maybe they have skills risk with batting average, but they don't have that much mm -hmm. playing time downside. So I'm content to take any one of the mashing early rounders who doesn't really run. Like Freddie Freeman, the problem with Freddie Freeman, I talked about this on Rates and Barrels maybe two weeks ago. His ADP is 13. He deserves to go there. But yeah. the problem with Freddie Freeman isn't necessarily that he doesn't run. The problem is what happens to my team in a snake draft if I draft him there. So if you said, do you like Freddie Freeman in an auction for the equivalent amount of money of what the 13th pick would normally go for? Like 35 bucks in a mixed league auction. No mm -hmm. problem at all with Freddie Freeman in an auction at $35. I think he can be a $35 player. But... Some of this is just kind of getting the pieces to fit that also pushes that fear or that need to at least get some speed early on. So I don't know if that's a, a satisfactory answer to your question, but I, <laughs> I don't think you have to overpay to get speed. But I think you do yeah. have to be mindful of it and you have to think about what's going to happen in the first few rounds especially. Because if you, if you take Freddie Freeman at 13 and then you get a pitcher coming back through, which is one of the most common builds, it's like Freeman at 13 with one of... Bauer, Darvish, Giolito, or Bueller. Those four guys all run off together between pick 16 and, and pick 19. You have zero steals or five steals maybe with your first two picks. You get all the way back down to the end of round three, and you're looking at Whit Merrifield if he slides, Tim Anderson, uh, Starling Marte. And you sort of have to take one of those guys and start addressing the category there because Adalberto Mondesi won't be there, so you don't have your parachute 50 steel guy and he's risky anyway right you could pair him with freeman if you really wanted to extremely safe first rounder volatile risky second rounder maybe that could work but i i don't know i, I don't know if i want to put half of my steals on one player because if he's 
hurt for any prolonged period of time. I had invested a lot in a player that was supposed to basically cover half a category for me and make that a strength, and now it's immediately a weakness because I can't find that many steals from his replacement on the waiver wire. Uh, so I, I do think, in a broader sense, the concerns about steals not being available throughout the draft mm-hmm. are a little bit overblown, but I'm almost wondering if the way people are handling pitchers this season is the greater tactical error. Because I mean, we're seeing in, in some draft champions leagues, which are 50-round draft and hold leagues, you don't have in-season pickups, we're seeing Garrett Cole go 1-1. We're seeing Jacob Insane. deGrom go 1-1. If you look at something like the Fangraphs auction calculator and run a 15-team mixed league through their uh, their calculator with any set of projections, you'll see that the top-end pitchers are worth as much as the top-end hitters, or more in some instances, depending on how you put those settings in. So you can justify it. I just wonder... Outside of the elite of the elite pitchers, the guys that have done it for a few years, I think Cole and DeGrom absolutely fit into that group. I'm a little more skeptical, relatively speaking, of like Bieber and Bauer coming off of what they did in the shortened season. Like Maybe you can justify it, but I'm, I'm thinking that that second wave of pitchers, especially that group that I mentioned at 16 through 19, the Bauer, mm-hmm. Darvish, Giolito, Bueller, even Nola at 22 and Castillo at 25, it feels like those guys and even the guys behind them are all getting pushed up because there's some sort of fear that there won't be enough pitching this year. We've seen downside from all those guys in our recent memory. Like It's only Cole and DeGrom that we haven't seen a significant downside from when you're looking at the top. I mean, go to go to 15 pitchers. I mean, it's only those two guys that we haven't seen any sort of you know downside where you would be really disappointed in spending what you have to spend to get them on draft day. And uh, I, it leads me away from them. I mean, you know, I think the two, if we get outside of Cole and DeGrom, and just for the record, I think DeGrom should be the runaway number one starting pitcher. He's just done it year after year after year now. Uh, Cole has had a a little bit more downside in the recent past, uh, but uh, goes without saying that those are the top two guys. When I look to the next group of guys, like I, I think Shane Bieber is pretty safe in ADP uh, of 9.64 in NFBC draft since uh, January 15th. That feels fine to me. I might not be the person who makes that pick. I don't think if you do make that pick, you're out of your mind. I think Trevor Bauer is going way too high. We have seen very extreme downside from him very recently. I, I do not understand how he is at this spot. I mean, if, for Trevor Bauer to justify being the fourth pitcher off the board in ADP of 16.7, 2020 needs to be what he does again. He needs to do it over the full 2021 season. And of course, that is within his realistic range of outcomes. I just don't see how you are betting that to be the outcome to the extent that you have to for it to be worth it. I think the two guys who are the most safe uh, in that next group are Darvish and Giolito. With what we've seen from you, Darvish, and just extremely lowering the walk rate over the last uh, season and a half. I think that's something that can stick around even as he gets into his mid-30s here. Going to Petco, you're not going to be too disappointed in that. And then Lucas Giolito, for me, is starting or has finally earned the respect that he deserved for being a guy who was – this was always supposed to be who Lucas Giolito was. And it was almost as though he was unfairly taxed uh, early on in his full-time MLB career because he wasn't that guy right away. But now you take 2019 – and you take 2020, you look at that season and a half, and this is what we thought Lucas Giolito was always going to be when he was at the top of the prospect lists with the Nationals. And this is why he was that centerpiece coming over 
to the White Sox. And now you look at it, and I think that we're seeing him fulfill fully the sort of ace-level pitcher he's supposed to be, both real-life and fantasy perspective. So those are the guys who I look at, and I could be very happy pairing Freddie Freeman with Lucas Giolito or Freddie Freeman with you, Darvish, and then hoping that one of those steals guys that you mentioned does make it to me in rounds three or four. But I'm not going to—I just don't— I don't know. It feels it feels very risky, and I'm still working my way through it. But I don't want to push for Trevor Bauer. I don't know if I want to necessarily push for Luis Castillo. I don't know if I want to push even for a guy who I really like in in Jack Flaherty or Zach Gallen. Like I, it feels like we're bumping these guys up the li- list a little bit more because of a perceived dearth of top level pitching that maybe we can fill in in other ways. Right. And I think one of the weird things about 2020 that was pointed out by Todd Zola and several other people in the fantasy community is just the way the schedule came together with central teams only facing Mm -hmm. other central teams and West teams only facing other West teams. That really led to some strange matchups, some very favorable matchups for pitchers in the central divisions, especially. So that just makes me very careful about buying into guys that reached new levels in that division as a group, especially if there's a massive hike in price. I mean, that applies to guys that are early. It applies to Bieber a little bit, even though I think he's generally pretty safe. It obviously applies to Bauer. Uh, I would say it applies even to Zach Plezak, who doesn't necessarily fit in today's conversation as someone who goes in the first three rounds, but his ADP is in the mid-60s, I think. So people are treating him like a solid SP2 coming off of 55 innings in a shortened season where he saw a lot of the Royals and the Tigers and the Pirates. And it's like, yes, he's going to see a lot of those matchups again. Tigers and Royals are in the AL Central, even with a normal schedule this year. He will see them a lot. He will take advantage of those matchups. He will be fine. I think the bigger point for me is I don't want to fall into a trap of overpaying for no reason. But I do want to be mindful of something. This kind of works in auctions this way, too. In auctions, if you're sitting at the table and players keep going early on for two, three, four, five bucks above your projected dollar values. So we're talking just about these early round players, same same types of guys. You have to recognize pretty quickly that if the entire room keeps overpaying for those players, you have to overpay also to get one. And it's not really that much of a, a problem because money, extra money coming out of the pool early means you're going to get a few bargains later on. Mm-hmm. And you'd rather overpay for a $30 player by $3 to $5 than overpay for a $5 player by $3 to $5. Makes a pretty big difference, right? Like The quality of the player you're getting Mm -hmm. is a lot higher when you spend up on the $30 plus player. So I think we're seeing a little bit of that with pitching. And I don't want to say, well, everyone else is only going pitching early, so I'm just not going to do it because that's what everyone's doing. I think it really depends on Mm -hmm. where you're at in the draft order, who you're playing against. Like All these variables are always important. Uh, But I, I think... You should have plans mapped out this year for, you know what? I don't like a pitcher in this spot. There's too much value with the hitters that I'm looking at instead. I'm going to take a hitter. Awesome. Do that. Your hitting is going to be fantastic. But you have to have a good idea of how you're going to get out of it. Who is undervalued? Who is the market truly missing on? And and what types of pitchers could exceed expectations for price and help you offset not getting some of those pitchers early on, right? Like you... You don't want to completely dismiss the crowd, but if you're going to dismiss the crowd, at least go in knowing how you're going to get out of it. Like one thing I would do if I'm not going to draft a pitcher in the first 
three or four rounds, which I'm, I'm okay doing that. It's not it's not ideal. Some people are trying to get two in the first five rounds. If I have one in the first five rounds, I'm a little more likely to push up elite relievers and try to get maybe two top 10 closers instead of one because I don't want to chase starting pitching on the waiver wire throughout the season and try to chase saves as well. I think that's putting yourself in a position where you're going to burn through your fab. Everybody's looking for saves all the time anyway. And I think one of the things you can do to help your ratios just a little bit is have those elite closers, right? If you have some really good closers that go 60 innings with two or sub two ERAs, that's going to offset a little bit of the damage you're going to incur by waiting longer to build out your rotation throughout the middle rounds, right? So for me, it's just like having a few counter adjustments in mind like that, that give you a better chance of pulling off the alternate build or the alternate strategy. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I actually want to go back to uh, something you said and uh, just, you know, sorry to double back, but I think this is an important point to be making. First of all, I would say that, um, you know, if everyone is, quote, overpaying a couple of bucks or a couple of draft spots for pitching, then it's not an overpay at that point. That's just what the market, that's what your draft, your auction market is being set at. Right? All these average auction values, average draft position, it's good to know, but it's an it's in the abstract. It's relative. And if suddenly the price goes up a little bit, then I think the price in your mind needs to go up a little bit because we're talking about finite resources. And you're not going to try to replace uh, Max Scherzer with two SP30 guys. That's just not how things work in the fantasy baseball world. So I I would say it's important to keep that in mind. Secondly, I I don't think we can drive home too fine a point on the central pitchers from last season. And I think what really jumped out at me when I started looking at it for this year is that by NFBC ADP right now, 12 of the top 22 starters pitched in either the AL Central or NL Central last year. And of course, there are ways where that could happen naturally, organically. But with the environment that these guys pitched in last season, I mean, it, it doesn't it feel like a slam dunk that at least a few of those guys are being inflated 
based on the favorable matchups. I mean, it just is. It just was a fact. The central divisions had the much worse offensive performances, much worse offensive teams on paper, and then in reality, than West and East. Of course, every single group had their weak points and their strong points, but you put them all together, and there's no doubt that the central pitchers had an easier road. And I do think they're, uh, even though I like, I mean, I, I can't really say I'm fading Kenta Maeda or Corbin Burns or even Zach Plesak, who you brought up, but there's got to be some of these guys who just aren't going to hit that level, right? Right. There are certainly going to be some players that disappoint us in this range. There are every year, regardless of whether we're coming off of a shortened season or we're coming off a normal season. We're going to have early rounders that fall on their face that didn't even necessarily get hurt, and they still let us down. With Maeda, I liked him a lot going into Minnesota last year, and fortunately I had him a bunch of places because he was very affordable it does feel like we've overcorrected, we as in the market, has overcorrected in how it's handling him. I think we're talking about a guy that probably projects closer to 150 or 160 innings than 180, 190. Some of that's just the way the Dodgers used them. They had the luxury of being able to move him to the pen in September to avoid letting him hit those workload-based incentives in his contract to help keep the price down on him. Part of that may have been dwindling effectiveness, though, over the course of a season, right? So I, I think that's a question that's still very much unanswered coming off of a 60-game season. Like, What really happens if Kenta Maeda takes the ball for 32 or 33 starts? What do those last mm-hmm. five or six starts look like? Does he turn into a pumpkin in September and, and turn in a six ERA because he's just completely out of gas? Like, I, I think that's a question at least worth asking at this point. I think I've drafted him in maybe one league so far, and it was only a mock draft for the Rotowire magazine, so it's not not one where I have to play it out and, and see what happens. But I think as much as I liked Maeda going into last season, I'm almost more likely to get priced out on him in 2021 than I am to have him again. I mean, look at some of the guys that are not in that range, not in the central, who have dropped a little bit. You know, Steven Strasburg has this neuritis issue with his wrist. If he's healthy... He's going up in maybe the top 10, top 12 mm-hmm. among starters. Yes. And right now his ADP is more like 70 overall. Like that's getting Strasburg as an SP2 when he can give you SP1 caliber innings every start out is really interesting to me. Uh, Hinjin Ryu, I think, actually has some of the some of the concerns of Maeda. The difference though is that right, Ryu's missed like significant shares of seasons with arm injuries, whereas Maeda has just had his workload modified. I think if you said Maeda versus Ryu is a toss-up, that actually makes a lot of sense to me just based on relative injury risk, core skills those guys bring to the table. I would choose Maeda, but there's another instance where we're talking about a 30-pick difference in where they're going in early drafts. I mean, that's it's two full rounds for for guys that I think are generally pretty similar with what they bring to the table. Maybe you get a few more Ks from Maeda, uh, but Hinjin Ryu looks like a, a relative bargain, right? So maybe the maybe the entire key to the puzzle this year is starting to identify the pitchers who are kind of falling into the round five, round six, round seven range, saying, all right, these are the guys that the market doesn't see as being worthy of pushing up to be an SP2. Mm-hmm. Where are people wrong? Who are they missing on? Denelson Lamette kind of falls in this range. I'm a little scared of him because of the injuries, especially late in the year two. Plus, he's a two-pitch guy with shaky command. So I don't think Lamette's that guy. 
Carlos Carrasco maybe could have been that guy, but now that he's a Met, everyone's pushing him up the board. So I think the price has jumped up one to of those a level. Central guys too from a year ago. Yeah, and I, I think he didn't even really give us numbers that took advantage of it either. So that's yep. kind of a weird mm-hmm. thing. But maybe you get down to guys like Kyle Hendricks or Zach Wheeler. I could see those guys being a little, a little bit undervalued. But even this is the earliest Hendricks has ever gone, right? I mean. Kyle Hendricks in ADP in the 80s? I don't remember this ever happening before. Yeah, it's. I don't know if it's extremely earlier than he's gone the last couple of seasons, but uh, it, it's got to be the earliest. And, you know, you, you, even as great as he is and at what he does, he is what he is. I mean, you're just not going to get the massive strikeout numbers from him. And you look at the other guys in his in his neighborhood, Denelson Lamette, he's going to give you those strikeout numbers. Zach Wheeler is going to give you more strikeouts. Framber Valdez, I think, is a pretty interesting guy. Uh, get to see him for a full season this year, and you know he could be someone who maybe is undervalued. Maybe he is being pushed down a little bit. Maybe his his just underlying talent would have him a little bit higher, but because we haven't seen him out there for a full season, he's getting pushed down a, a little bit in this range. I think you're right, though, to focus on this range, right? Like the, the person, the people who have the best starting rotation in a league are going to be either the people who just go crazy on it and take three starters in their first four picks or something like that, which I understand the logic for, but it's not my preferred way to build a team. Or it's going to be the person who hits on, let's just say, Fran Valdez, and Fran Valdez is a top 20 starter. It's going to be one or the other there. Yeah, I think the pitcher I like the most in that range right now is Jose Barrios. I've been a perennial sucker for yeah, Barrios man. for three <laughs> years now. I still think we're, we're getting there where the secondaries keep improving. I trust the organization. I mean, we're talking about how we have all these pitchers from the central that have jumped up. He didn't yet. He His did situation not. is still good. <laughs> like, is is a 60-game season enough for us to look at Barrios against Maeda and go, eh, Maeda's just that much better than Barrios now? Like For me, it's not. And I think that's, that's where I'm looking. I'm looking in that range trying to find uh, the opportunity to get somebody who could be next year's surprise in the top 50. And I think Barrios ticks a lot of boxes in that range. I, maybe one other strategy or one other piece we could put together at some point is what would your board look like if you built a draft board where you only chose players whose ADP did not go up after last season? <laughs> like anybody okay. whose ADP went up is out. And that, I mean, that includes some breakout guys too, right? So that means no Luis Robert. You're not getting him. Shane Bieber eliminated. Maybe you could have a little cutoff, right? If you jump up, if Jacob deGrom's ADP was eight last year and it's six this year, that shouldn't eliminate him. But right. if you have a threshold, if you have an increase of, even a round in ADP. It's got to be like a percentage, a percentage increase, not a not a pure like absolute increase. Right, but let's just from uh, just in, in theory, if we just wipe out the players that have increased in value since last year, do you think you can build a championship fantasy baseball team with players whose value has gone down in the draft market since last year? Entirely built entirely from that group. Um. Could, yes, I would never do it myself. I, I just think that, I mean, 60 games is not 162, but it's not nothing. It's not a week. We're not talking about a week's worth of games, a, a guy getting hot and just uh, putting up these numbers. Like 60 games, uh, didn't Eno write that column last year about 60 games being you know obviously imperfect, but still a relatively representative sample of what a player is over a full 162? Like, I don't think we're talking about these jumps that some of the players made last year being 
totally unrepeatable in a way that makes them worthy of those jumps. Is is Juan Soto going to have a 201 WRC plus again this season? Of course not. He's not going to have a 201. But is that representative of the type of player he can be over 162 where he gives us a 175 WRC plus? I think it is. And so I think that that's where this comes into play is, is understanding that 60 can still be representative enough that we can believe in the breakouts so long as we have something else to point to. And I actually think that uh, the, the Barrios and Maeda discussion is one that is instructive here. You look at Kenta Maeda, we, you and me talked, I mean, how many times did we talk about how much we trust the Twins organization, right? It was seemed like every other episode we were getting into that and how much we trust them with pitchers. And you look at Maeda, two big departures last season, huge increase in his slider usage, huge increase in his changeup usage basically coming entirely at the extent of his four-seam fastball, these numbers coming from StatCast. And I think that that is the sort of change. That is a substantive, clear difference in a way he is deploying his arsenal, in a way that he is attacking hitters and what he is using against certain hitters on either side of the plate. That tells us that the the jump that he was able to make across 60 games, while it was a smaller sample, was also based on something other than just being hot for you know 40% of a season that maybe evens out over 100% of a normal length season. And so that's why I am buying Maeda, even though I mentioned him as one of the central guys to you know maybe be scared of. I buy what we saw from Kenta Maeda last season. The reason why I'm worried about Jose Barrios is that we've now seen you know, four, even if we count, right, it was, last year was a full season for him, right? I mean, it was, a, it was still the full season that he pitched. So four full seasons where he's been basically the same guy. I just feel like if we were going to see it from Jose Barrios in a way that he pitched up to being a top 20 guy, we would have seen it by now in his career. And he didn't make any of the changes that we saw from Maeda last year that would have me believe that there's another gear to be found in this season. Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing with Barrios, though, is that we have a more balanced sort of pitch mix than we get from a lot of starters. Like I mentioned to Nelson Lamette, kind of in passing before, mm-hmm. clearly more of a two-pitch sort of guy. Barrios mixes three very well, and I think we're seeing maybe a little uptick in velocity that's going underreported. I mean, last season, Barrios was averaging 94.5 miles per hour on his four-seamer. He's, he's got a four-seamer and a sinker, at least by the, the stat cast pitch distribution. So he was up about a, a full tick, a little more than a full tick on the four-seamer. That kind of matters. Like the jump from 93 to 94 is a big deal. It's it's nice because he's not throwing that pitch 60 or 70% of the time. He's not one of those guys that throws his fastball too much. He actually mixes those secondaries effectively. Uh, so I, I'm a little more optimistic than than you are. I mean, maybe I'm a lot more optimistic than you are at Barrios <laughs> at this point. Uh, but again... It's it's a price that's very reasonable relative to the market. If he was going yeah, thirty picks earlier, I'm I'm out. Like it, it's a pretty fine line to walk this year where players are going. Uh, but if you went back to the the idea, if you said, okay, let's try this idea where you're going to only draft players that have fallen, you're going to get some players if you're in the back part of round one who were early first rounders. I mean, Christian Yelich was my top ranked player yeah. going into last season. You might get him at twelve or thirteen in a draft right now, which feels like a steal to me. Like how much of that is I'm with you. is me being a, a Brewers fan who just wants that to happen. And how much of that is me looking at the underlying numbers, seeing how hard he was hitting the ball, you know, seeing that this park is obviously still a good place to hit. And that look, he he was also among the players that may have been impacted by the lack of in game video. Several players have have talked about it. You wonder if that was one of the things that 
kind of help prop up that K rate from Yelich last year. Like a 30.8% strikeout rate from Christian Yelich just it doesn't make sense to me as something that we're going to see going forward. I'm totally with you on Yelich, and uh, I think that he's going to be absolutely fine this season. I do think that he's one of those guys at the back end of the first round who I would be all over uh, if uh, if he ends up falling to me. Uh, you're looking at a, a range of guys, Trevor Story in there, Jose Ramirez in there, and I think I would take Yelich. I think I would maybe still take Story over him, but I would take Yelich over Ramirez. And I do think that there's something to be said. But again, like to me, this this still comes back to it's a case by case basis. Christian Yelich, I am more than willing to give a pass on for what happened to him last season, for what his numbers were last season, because of what we have seen from Christian Yelich in the two years preceding last season and the player that we know he still really is. I mean, you can even actually, you can point to Jose Ramirez in 2019 as an example of this. Jose Ramirez was, I mean, among the literal worst day-in, day-out position players in the majors for the first half of 2019. You look at the end of 2019 numbers, and if you didn't have that context, you would say, yeah, things worked out the way they were supposed to for Jose Ramirez. A little step back from what he was in 2018, but still a very good Jose Ramirez year. Guys like Christian Yelich deserve the benefit of the doubt in that. So I think if you're if you're talking about only targeting players who are not targeting players who made a big ADP jump from 2020 to 2021. I do think Christian Yelich is the poster child for that, but I still think that comes back to it being a case-by-case basis, and certain players have earned the benefit of the doubt. Certain players have not earned the benefit of the doubt, and I think that's ultimately where you need to be resting your 2020 analysis. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We have to remember, players have bad halves. <laughs> this they was do. less than a All half the season. Except for Rem- Mike Trout. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jose Ramirez was a really good example to bring up there because if you look back at the first half of his 2019 season, he had a 70 WRC+. plus. So Jose Ramirez was 30% worse than a league average hitter. The crazy thing with him, his K rate didn't really go through the roof. He had a 13.5% strikeout rate and an 11.3% walk rate. So the play discipline was still intact. He had 18 steals, so he was still giving us that. But his slash line was 218, 308, 344. Now imagine seeing a 218, 308, 344 next to somebody who we thought was a a first-rounder going into 2021, coming off of a 60-game season, coming off of a season shorter than the half-splits from the first half of, of a season. Like that's that's just a weird way to think about the problem, but hopefully it's somewhat instructive that there are going to be some players that bounce back from miserable 2020s and they bounce all the way back to their previous levels. But there are going to be some guys who 
were in decline and the numbers showed more decline than there really was. So the bounce back's not going to happen. It's going to be, you know, better than last year, but not by nearly as much as we'd hoped. Like that's going to happen too, right? Players obviously got better and got worse in the shortened season. That that can't that really can't go without being true. Mm-hmm. But I think having done it for multiple years, especially, that should give you a lot of confidence in in Yelich bouncing back. I mean, Cody Bellinger, I, I don't know why people are so disappointed in him. As long as his shoulder's healthy, he's an easy late first rounder for me. I have no hesitation there if, if everything's on track for him when spring training begins. I look at other guys that I have ranked up in that range. Trevor Story, I mean, the biggest risk with him is that Colorado trades him away, but he steals bases. <laughs> like, if, like, he runs. Like, that That translates everywhere. His power is the good, legitimate power. Is he, is he like a 40 home run guy? No, but he's probably a high 20s, low 30s home run guy in most parks with speed. So I don't think the bottom falls out completely on Trevor Story if the Rockies do, in fact, trade him at some point prior to this season or during the 2021 season. I mean, it's it's a great year to look at the first round and have this sort of vibe of, I can do almost anything I want because you can justify mm-hmm. it very easily. You can tell yourself a story about pretty much any player in the pool yes. that satisfies your, your explanation for what a first round pick should look like and what a second round pick should look like. So, uh, you know, with that flexibility and with that freedom comes... Um, some very disappointing consequences sometimes. Like we will, <laughs> I'm sure there will be people that make some horrific decisions and those will be revealed over the course of the season. Uh, but at least right now, where we're sitting right now, trying to predict the future coming off the weird 2020, there's so many ways to build a team that this actually is shaping up to be one of the most fun years of fantasy baseball in a long time. I totally agree with you. And I mean, yeah, you just look at the, look at, just pull up NFBC ADP and look at the first 15 guys and tell me you would be disappointed with any of those guys at their ADP. Even if you would take, like, I would take Mike Trout right? But uh, even no matter who you would take in what spot, like, you would not be disappointed in any of those guys forming the foundation of your team. So I agree with you completely there that this is, uh, this is the most um, plausible choose-your-own-adventure season that we've seen in some time. And it's not only because of 2020, because, I mean, you look at those 15 guys, you look at the guys who are going to be taken in the first 15 picks, the first round, and those are guys who we would expect to be here. Even if you wipe 2020 off the books, if you didn't know a thing about what happened in 2020 and someone showed you, hey, this is what the first 15 picks look like, what do you think? You would say, yep, pretty reasonable. Trout, seven, what happened to him? Bellinger, 14, hmm, what happened to him? But... Ultimately, you would say that that's a reasonable look. And so I think that that makes it really fun. And um, you know, I know we got to wrap things up here relatively soon, but I think the most interesting guy, and I think the guy who's going to bear the most diving into 2020 and how re- how seriously we're going to take it, and he is for a number of reasons, not just because of the short season, but because of injury and COVID, is Austin Meadows. I mean, after the monster 2019 season he had, and then just a huge step back in 2020, like he's going to be, I think, one of the hardest guys. You're either just going to have to be a true believer, or you're not going to end up with him. Right. He'd be very prominent on your players who fell on ADP from last year. Like if you believed, if you were someone who thought Austin Meadows belonged as a late second, early third round pick in 2020, you should be all over him at a price that's 40 or 50 picks later than that in 2021. I mean, 
there's power, there is speed, there looks like a pretty good batting average foundation. Maybe because it's the Rays, there's a little bit of playing time risk because we never know how they're going to potentially mix and match with a few platoon guys. But all those things were there last year at that price. I'm definitely intrigued. I mean, Meadows, between the virus and an oblique injury, just wasn't healthy for the bulk of the shortened mm-hmm. season. So yes, I, I think he's exactly as you described, someone that you really want to give a pass to for what happened last year because none of it really makes any sense. It wasn't the next logical step in what seems like a, a pretty nice breakout in 2019, right? Like, I I don't think that was a fluke. And I'm very interested in going after him at that discounted price. 33 homers, a dozen steals. The thing I'm most worried about with Meadows is the stolen bases. I think that probably mm-hmm. goes away. But if you said Austin Meadows is going to be equal in value to Michael Conforto this year, that wouldn't surprise me at all. If you said Austin Meadows is going to match the production of Eloy Jimenez this year, that actually wouldn't surprise me at all because I think yep. Eloy is going in the top 40 overall. And Jimenez doesn't steal bases. Batting average is obviously a strength for him. Run production's there. Power's there. But you're basically looking for a season like the one Austin Meadows just turned in in 2019 from Eloy Jimenez. And you can get that from the guy who actually did it quite a bit later. <laughs> I am. I was, I was so out on Austin Meadows last year. I just thought it was too much of a jump based on one year. And now I am so in on him this year because I think it's too much of a drop. And I think that really is how we're going to have to look at things in our 2021 draft season. Yeah, I'm uh, right there with you. Well, that's going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. You can find us on Twitter. He's at M. Beller. I am at Derek Van Riper. If you want to sign up for a subscription to The Athletic, you can get in for $3.99 a month to start. Theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast is the URL to get that done. For Michael Beller, I'm Derek Van Riper. We are back on Tuesday with our next installment of Under the Radar. (laughs) 